So our meetings together started uh, with uh, the need to make sense of this crumbling, collapsing civilization. Uh, and ours is a collapsing civilization, and we uh, have considered this uh, impending, urgent theme uh, from the scripture. And um, which guided us especially after some preliminaries to Romans chapter 1 as a passage that is so enlightening and foundational to what we're talking about. Uh, Of course, we should be very interested in this theme. Because a collapsing civilization is the one that we're living in. And this is where we are. We try to locate ourselves uh, in which time of this modern civilization are we at. Are we at the beginning? Are we at the zenith? Or are we in the final stages? And I think we all agree. We we are towards the end. In so many ways, this civilization has already expressed um, any or produced uh, um, any any good that it could offer in the providence of God. Um, but in things that have any value, I don't think we're producing much anything at all. We've become very good with cell phones and all sorts of technological gadgets, but if you if you think of what what things of values are uh, society producing, it'd be very difficult to find one. Uh, so we know that uh, the whatever our civilization was to produce that was of any service and good to Uh, the real good of the human race has already been exhausted. And so, uh, when we looked at Romans 1, beginning especially from verses 18 through 32, we noticed how Paul's argument here, yes, he's talking about the condition, the uh, sinful, guilty, and lost condition of the human race. But his arguments is historical. He's describing how his civilization got to where it was. And there is a sequence. This happened, therefore this happened, therefore this happened, therefore this happened. So he's describing stages, uh, historical stages through which or by which his civilization got to be where it was when Paul wrote the letter. And what were these stages? How, how does a crumbling, uh, how does a civilization begin to crumble? What is, what are the stages, the phases? And so we recognize four in uh, Romans 1 verse 18. And so, as we described it, from verse uh, in verse uh, 
uh, 21, the first stage of a collapsing civilization, the a radical denial of God. The more a civilization or a society denies God, the more it sets the stage for his own demise. <laughs> and then uh, secondly, from verses... Uh, 22 and 23, a degraded idolatry, a sordid, vicious, degraded idolatry. So, and then thirdly, uh, from verses 24, we say 27, 28, a reckless immorality, uncontrolled, uncontained immorality. There are no more limits recognized. There are no more boundaries. Everything is possible because God doesn't exist. Um, and that leads to the fourth stage from, let's say, verse 28 all the way to 31. A, uh, a drift towards a destructive and self-destructive society. Now, mind you that what Paul speaks about in verses, uh, especially 21, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. These are all evil things that people do to others. But as others do those evil things to them, it becomes really like a civil war. To where all are against all. Everybody's against everybody. Just like in the days of Noah. The earth was full of violence. So as I try to destroy you. And you try to destroy me. It becomes a self-destructive society. That's where ultimately sin leads. To self-destruction under the judgment of God. But it all begins with the denial of God. That's the first phase. Then it develops into this fabrication of idols. And thirdly, this reckless immorality, because idolatry leads to immorality. And then this reckless immorality leads to destruction. And uh, we considered all this in the two sessions on Sunday morning and evening. And to, you know, tonight together... For the time that we have, we want to, you know, briefly uh, consider what we are to do. Our reflection on the truth of God is never something that we do for the love of knowing. <laughs> uh, that that ought, ought to we always uh, some practical implications and consequences when we learn things. Um, in the poster that we put on Facebook, we use the image of a dilapidated city with a question on the top, Lord, what are we to do? Question mark. I would like to make a correction on that uh, poster, um, which was good as it was. But what we wrote there, Lord, what are we to do? 
We are in the midst of a society that is this way, where God is disowned and rejected, uh, radically denied and repudiated, and idols are fabricated uh, and served in the place of God everywhere. Men and women are Abandon my God to their own passions and so abandon themselves <laughs> to their own passions. <laughs> and then, of course, fourthly, uh, this, uh, our society, our human society is destroying itself under the judgment of God. So the cry goes out, Lord, what are we to do? It is the natural answer when you look around. Uh, to say, what can we do? What, what are we to do in the midst of this situation? We live in such a time. We don't live here. We don't live here. We live, we live here way below. This is where you put us in your providence. How, what, what are we to do? Now, that's a very natural reaction. But in many ways, it is a risky reaction. Because the first question should be, what are we to be and not what are we to do? Because just on the basis of the principle that uh, our testimony, the testimony of our works... (laughs) cannot be regarded as effective if they do not correspond to someone who you really are. Uh, Like God says many times, be ye holy, for I am holy. Something we are to be. Because if we're hypocrites and our life and character does not match what we do, our works, our evangelism, our meetings, whatever we may do, will be more of an obstacle to the gospel than anything. So the first question is not so much to begin with, what are we to do? But Lord, what are we to be in such a time of history? What am I to be? And as I often do in our church, I constantly think of these four aspects, you know, four uh, sectors of our life. What am I to be individually? What am I to be in my marriage? Why am I to be in my family? What am I to be? What are we to be as a church or as churches? So this this mindset that when you see these different sectors, uh, in every one of which we have responsibilities, individual responsibilities, helps you to not become too self-focused, too individualistic in your outlook, but to cover all, all the different areas. What am I to be individually? What am I to be as, what are we to be as a couple? What are we to be as a family if we have one? What are we to be as a church or as churches? Then, when we cover all of these sectors or aspects, then uh, that will have been good. And uh, now, this question of what are we to be before what are we to do, 
It's very important just as we consider this passage. Because the first thing that we are to consider as we look at this passage is not what we are to do in response to this situation, but how we may be influenced by this sort of culture to the detriment of our testimony. Uh, We say this because we know throughout history the church has always been negatively influenced by the evil of the culture in which it lived. It lived. Uh, When, for example, um, in the Western culture, uh, reason uh, dominated in the, in the in the time of the enlightenment then lo and behold the the church uh, was influenced by that became rationalistic and that's where liberalism started a rationalistic approach to the truth of god that makes human reason the measure of the truth of god so ultimately it leads the church to deny the, the divine, the supernatural, because the, tr- the supernatural goes beyond our little brain. So, and if you study church history in the time of the Enlightenment, that's exactly what happened. Uh, a, a large section of Protestantism became rationalistic, and that's where liberalism started. Then, in the age of Romanticism, the, the, the end of the 1700s, the beginning of the 1800s. Uh, so that's where feelings and emotions begin to be the dominant factor in culture. Well, the church was influenced by that too. <laughs> uh, we would say that's where pietism or sentimentalism or this sort of highly pressured sentimental or emotional approach to revival meetings took place. That's the age of Finney, for example, Charles Finney. Um, It had a a tremendous impact on our hymns, for example. Hymns prior to Romanticism had this amazing um, evenness, balance between truth and sentiment. But with you know romanticism, it seems like truth evaporated and was filled with all sorts of very emotional statements that um, could not really take the place of good theology. And so the, the, uh, the, the hymn books, uh, hymnology became, uh, was negatively influenced and we still bear... And also, let us remember that if um, liberalism uh, originated with the Enlightenment era and its impact uh, in the church in terms of a rationalistic approach to the study of Scripture with Romanticism, then what happened was that you have there the beginning, let us say, uh, 
even the charismatic movement in many ways. So uh, let us always remember that uh, a, a, a healthy Christian life is the one that leads you to be balanced. To where your, your intellectual needs are satisfied, your conscience needs are satisfied, your emotional needs are satisfied. So there is an evenness. There's no disproportion. When you see people that are electrified, they're full of this highly emotional um, characters or worship services, you know, where then there's something wrong or very intellectualistic in their approach. That's wrong too. There must be this balance. Now, should I say that in the 1800s, as the 1800s proceeded, socialism became very strong. The middle of the 1800s. The Communistic Manifesto is 1848. And so... That when that became very popular, then you have the beginning of the social gospel. The church was influenced by that. And it confounded the true gospel that saves the whole person with a social gospel whose purpose was to save society from a social standpoint with some human uh, recipes. But that's again a distortion. But you can go through every stage to every epoch of, of our civilization's history because our civilization went through different stages. And you can see that at every stage the church was strongly, negatively influenced by the dominating ideologies of the time. And so, as we approach the question, what am I to be? At this time, in this sort of situation, I need to ask myself the question. We need to ask ourselves the question immediately. How is our culture influencing us in a negative way? Because if, what, if these things that are described in these four stages, <laughs> the denial of God, idolatry, immorality, and destructiveness, have a big influence on, on us, then that will destroy our ability to be a witness <laughs> to uh, the world around us. And because they tend to affect us, we need to, first of all, consider, Lord, are these things influencing me? Are they influencing my marriage? Are they influencing my family? Are they influencing my church? Or our churches. Um, so, let us turn our eyes to the to this passage, and let's work with with two things in mind. First of all, we saw these are the four stages, which become really when it's all said and done. Four characteristic characteristics of a collapsing civilization. It's not that when they are destroying themselves, they went back to recognizing God. No, this is an accumulation. 
it's built up. They they they, they deny God, then they become idolatrous, then they become immoral, and they finally fall into the self-destructive forces, vortex. But it's all a built up. So that these four becomes four characteristic, present characteristic of a crumbling society such as ours. And so, uh, when you put them all together, they are, let us say, um, constitutive features of our present day culture. They are feature characteristics of our present day culture as a whole. And as we, as we will work through them in the time that we have, let us do it this way. First of all, how are they affecting us? And then, how, what is our answer to be to this problem, to this one issue? Um, well, we saw that... Let us begin with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse because. So, Paul here uh, sets his major truth, what he calls the truth. <laughs> and the truth is the truth of the existence of the eternal God, creator of the heavens and the earth. That's, that's Paul's first uh, block <laughs> of truth. Which is no wonder, because that's exactly how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's exactly where Paul begins his argument here. Which is very instructive. It's very instructive. Because of course, when Paul analyzes the first stage of the demise of our civilization, verse 21, he says, this one truth, the truth of the existence of the eternal God who created the heavens and the earth, is denied. Because although they knew this, <laughs> they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Paul says, here's the truth, undeniable, clear, evident, by all evidence, evident. <laughs> and yet, they denied it, and they continue to deny it. So, this is the first problem that Paul sees as 
being the ultimate problem. The problem of the problems. The cause, the, the, the evil cause of all other evils is the, deny, the, the uh, denial of God. Of course, if we think theologically, we can go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and we can see exactly the same thing. The denial of God was Adam's first sin. Not you, but me. Not you, but me. Adam said, I do not want to recognize you. I want to be the one that will choose what is good and evil for my own self. So, the denial of God. We find the denial of God as the central point of man's fall in the parable of the prodigal son. When he abandoned his father and went his own way. See, this is how the Bible interprets human history. The fundamental truth is God. The existence of God as creator of heaven and earth. That's how the Bible begins. And that's where man's civilization or, or man's, mankind <laughs> begins to fall in the Bible. And will continue to fall over this. As they deny this truth. So. The first question ought to be. Not how we respond to this challenge. But ought to be. Has this denial of God. Affected the church. Is this diminishing of God. Affected the church. As this tendency. Even to make God marginal. And not central effect of the church. And what shall we answer to that question? Of course, it has happened. We would say that the central problem of American Christianity is the fact that it is centered on man and not is centered on God. God is, is being placed at the margin of things. That's why all the almost all of Today's contemporary music is about the one who sings and not about the one who is sung. It is about the worshiper and not the God who's worshipped. The, the church seems to have become unable to express who God is with any sort of content without vain re, re, repetitions. And so, and of course we could go on and on <laughs> just as we think of how the world's denial of God has affected the church or has affected us, has affected preachers as they come up on the pulpit. And again, they make the whims and the satisfaction of men's whims the end and the content of their sermons instead of God and who He is and what we are be, be towards Him in relation to Him. Oh. Secondly, and perhaps more intimately, we need to ask ourselves, in what way do I deny God? In what way am I robbing Him of the space, the centrality, the recognition that He should have in my life? He says here, they knew not God, 
Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. Am I glorifying God in my life? Am I thankful to God? Am I living, sensing, practicing these things that the world does not know, does not even recognize, but they should be in me because I'm a Christian? As we think, and of course this could be expanded, but we don't have that sort of a time. But then as we think of how, how should I answer, how should I answer to the world, having made sure that God is recognized in my life. And let me just enter this one thought. Uh, notice that it is the God of creation that they deny. <laughs> He's not speaking yet of Jesus Christ. He will speak of him later. But he's the God of creation. This is the truth that everybody knows. <laughs> and so, uh, we, we should uh, uh, do two things. Of course, one, make sure that we recognize the God of creation in our life. And I just received a message from a... Uh, a person in, in, in Rome, Italy, in our church that is seeking the Lord, you know, Pieret, and uh, she said that she's now learning to worship God as creator. He said, I, I, don't, I don't feel that I'm honest to worship him as redeemer because I don't believe in him, but at least I want to be able to recognize him as creator, you know. And, of course, that's what we should do. There are plenty of psalms that sing the glory of God as Creator. And we know that Jesus Christ appreciated nature, birds and flowers, and the things. He could speak with so many parables of the things of the earth, things that God has created. Think of how He enjoyed being on the mountains, on the mountaintops. We, we should not become so city-like, <laughs> surrounded by man's creation, that we lose sight and appreciate God Creator. God Creator. Uh, my wife is an admirer of the moon and the sunset and the sunrises. And, which, this is exactly what we're talking about. Living day to day, not just becoming used to the things that we see, but God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. He's the creator of all things. But now, uh, let me also say something here. I think it's very important. The denial of God that's everywhere in our society, even though I, sh I should tell you it's much more in Italy than it is here yet, um, would have the impact of making it look like God is not present. It has a way of like erasing God from reality. The world is like God does not exist. And so what the, the kind of societies that the man tends to build are societies where God does not seem to be present because He's nowhere recognized. It's like He's been banned out of man's society. 
And and I know there are Psalms where Paul well where David says, Lord, where are you? <laughs> Why do you tarry? Why do you delay? And see, this can have a negative impact even on our emotional um, um, condition. It's hard to live in a society devoid of God where you don't see God everywhere around you. Not only in the trees and in the wind and in the sky, but in people. People where you see God, you see them in their life, you see them in their actions, you see them in their kindness, in their purity, in their humility. These are things that disappeared. (laughs) And so, uh, we need to cultivate the presence of God in our life. I know this is not the sort of Christianity that's practiced today, generally. (laughs) The practice of the presence of God. Being in His presence, being still, and thinking of who God is. And growing in that inner conviction of, of the glory of God that man does not want to see. We want to see it. We, we need to seek it and appreciate it. And that's a wonderful cure for depression, for example. A wonderful cure for depression. It is depressing to live in this world. You see so much filth, so much emptiness, so much stupidity, superficiality. You hardly see God at all anywhere in this world. But we need to be able to see Him. And if our spirits tend to, you know, go under sometimes uh, and bent in, in a sentiment of, of emptiness or, um, what should I say, um, depression or discouragement. This is the best thing there is for us to be you know, lifted up. Not the denial of God that I see around me, but the affirmation of who God is and the consideration of who He is. Now, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. And as we enter into the second aspect of each one of these four phases, what's the best way to answer man's denial of God? Having said that we need to be affirmers <laughs> of the reality of God in our life, that's the best thing that we need to be. Uh, let me underscore something that Paul's approach here is all forward. In the sense that Paul never lets himself being set in a position of defense. A sort of an apologetic position to where he's going to have to justify his faith in God. Bringing out all sorts of evidences and arguments. and Paul doesn't do that. All the way through here, what does he do? He enters into the subject. He speaks to the world. They did not glorify God. They uh, fabricated 
idols. They pursued all sorts of immorality. And they are destroying themselves. So Paul is not, does not place himself in a defensive position. He's very much on the attack. Of course, it's an evangelical attack. But he's not leaning backward, being taken back by all the questions to justify his faith. But he's rather going forward to challenge uh, men's unbelief. If what Paul says here is true, as it is true in verse 20, that since the creation of the world is invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him. What Paul is saying here is that the reality of God is evident to see. Men will try to deny it in every way possible, ideologically, philosophically, in every way, practically, socially, culturally. Yes, men will do that. But Paul says his existence is evident. It's clearly revealed because he revealed it. And everybody knows. You see, from what you can see in verse 21, the characteristic of God's revelation of himself are that it is clear and universal. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. They see it. But, look back at verse 18. They suppress it. They suppress it. See, man's problem, it's not that he lacks the evidence to be able to recognize that God is real. The evidences are all there. And the best evidence are not those that we can bring up. The best evidence is those that God has already furnished. And He's always furnishing every day. Day and night, says Psalms 19. He speaks not through words, but through the language of creation that gives strong impressions on the consciences of men and women to let them know always, I am He. I am He. What does this mean as I want to react to, as, as, I, as I want to face a world who denies God? What am I to do? Well, as, I, as I'm thinking now of the world, uh, I do not need to draw back in defense to try to justify my faith. Because according to Paul, Faith is the most nat- should be the most natural thing there is, according to the evidence that we have. It is absurd, absurd to believe that everything happened through chance and evolution. It is completely stupid. It is completely absurd from a biblical standpoint. And the only way man can believe that you know what it is? <clears throat> it's what Paul says here in verse 21. Because they, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Or, as he would say in verse 
28, as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. And that word debased means dysfunctional. (laughs) It's no longer fit to reason correctly through things. So, we don't need to try to justify our faith. Rather, we, we need to do what Paul does. We need to show the nature of unbelief. We should say, what? You don't believe in God? <laughs> Not, well, I believe in God because... No, no. I believe in God because it's all is very evident. <laughs> We need to be able to help the other understand why he doesn't believe. The nature of the unbelief. The mechanisms of the mind. We we saw some... Yes, uh, Sunday, didn't we? Why man denies God? You know, is intimidated, terrified by the very thought of God. So that it becomes a moral issue with him. Because he feels guilty. There's a conscience problem here. And so our apologetic must not be defensive. It must be a forward, offensive apologetic. Offensive in the positive sense of the gospel apologetic. To be able to speak to the heart, to the conscience, and help the other understand the conscience problem, the guilt problem, the pride problem that will not let him acknowledge God, or because of which he will not acknowledge God. So, Paul here dissects the nature of man's unbelief (laughs) for the benefit of those who will have ears to hear, so that their uh, basic dishonesty is uncovered, and man finds himself face to face with the reality of his dishonesty, the denial of God. Although they knew not God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, it will be important at this point to to say, as we uh, try to help the unbeliever understand his problem, uh, the second stage here becomes fundamental. Why? Look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So, uh, here we step into the second phase, idolatry. But notice that the reason why idolatry has been universal in human history, because all ancient civilizations were idolaters. They worshipped idols. Statues, uh, images, trees, rocks, animals, crocodiles, snakes. That's what we have been doing for thousands of years. Why? 
how do you explain this universal hallucination? And we, what we saw Sunday was that there is, because it is universal, there has to be something deep in the nature of man that causes every human being to become an idolater. This is not just a few people have done it. We all, all humanity has been idolaters since the dawn of history, after Adam's fall. And so that can, this type of problem, because you know, the Romans were very good in many other ways. <laughs> they, they, they could build roads. They had a pretty decent laws in many ways. Uh, and, but they were idolaters. And so the Grecians and so all the others. And this universal hallucination can only be explained by the fact that there is something within human nature itself. The human nature that we all share and that we all share the same basic issues. Why does man as man become idolater and is an idolater? Because he has a problem with God. Deep, deep, deep down in his conscience. As Paul says in uh, uh, verse 23, change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image, into this uh, base and low uh, vicious thing, an image made by man. So it is the glory of God that man tries to hide by using the image to accomplish that. He sets the image before him and in between him and God, so that he will not see the glory of God. He will identify God with this unintimidating image that he himself created, which causes, causes no problems to him at all. And he will do that and say, you are God. And he does that because he does not want to say, conscience which are much deeper and much more effective because they know Paul says they know even in verse 32 <laughs> look at chapter 132 it says knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them knowing 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 they are inexcusable. And that knowledge the man has in his conscience is our ally. Because it's the weakest point in the constitution of man as a sinner that we can speak to and address. It's where it's the weakest. The voice of his conscience. And if we learn to address these issues and deal with people's lives and help them see their condition by coming alongside his conscience and doubling the voice, echoing the voice of his conscience by reminding him of what his conscience has already been telling him all this time, then that will be the most effective thing. That's why Christ, with one statement, 
could dispel a whole crowd. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. One statement to prick their conscience. They all left. He could have started an argument about the Mosaic law. And he didn't do that. He didn't do that. What, what a master he is. But now, it's very obvious that we'll have to postpone uh, next session to, to Sunday. Uh, but at least let me finish the one thing about the idols. And then we'll, you know, we'll pick it up. Uh, so, chapter 1 and... Let us reason more about these idols. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. (sighs) Now, idolatry is a huge theme in the Bible. It's a huge theme in the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say. The Bible is actually the only book that can help us understand the nature of this idolatry. Uh, But one thing is for sure. The idol is that which we place, we put in the place of God to remove God from our sight, from our mind, from our conscience. So that his, the thought of him would not bother us anymore. That's the purpose of the idol. The idol is fabricated to help man to remove God out of his mind and in conscience so that he may go his merry way and live the life as he pleases. And so, and again, we can go back and do what we have done with the, 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 the issue of the denial of God. The making of idols. Uh, Our society is full of idols. Some are more influential than others. Some are more popular than others. Some are more effective than others. But our society is full of idols. America's society, Italian society, is full of idols. And the first question we we should ask ourselves is, are these idols influencing me? Because if they influence me individually, in my life as you know, marriage, uh, or in the family, or in the church, or in Christianity as a whole, then we will not be very effective in showing the idolatry of the world if the church has become idolaters. So we need to deal with ourselves. And what are the idols of the world? Are there some idols of the world that are affecting me? Breaking through and influencing my life? In which area? In what way? So after I deal with that, then I'm in a better position to help my my fellow sinner to understand his own problem. I need to first deal with mine, if we have one. And we usually do. And then this has a lot to do with knowing ourselves. Uh, Men are different than women. Women are different than men. We tend to uh, have 
weaknesses in some areas or in others. But whatever the weaknesses are, we need to face them and deal with them. Uh, Remember that idols are the most powerful uh, instruments in, in, in a fallen and sinful culture to affect us. They are embellished. They are made attractive, seducive. It's, it's difficult to live in an idolater, idolatrous culture and in some way not even feel that pressure, those voices whispering in our ears, you know, uh, to go day after day facing those things. Um, so the church must be very aware of, of this. And the church ought to have a strong theology of idolatry <laughs> to understand what it is, how the nature, how it's built, its functions, and then make it uh, uh, you know, relevant by contextualizing it. What are the idols in which my culture, of which my culture is full? And how am I coping with all of these things? Uh, after which, the last thing I will say is, I will go to Isaiah in chapter 44, and we'll, we'll end there for tonight. Isaiah 44. Uh, the prophet is writing about idolatry, the idols uh, that were being built in his own day. And I will read especially from verse 16 all the way to verse 20. He's talking about the idol maker who cuts a tree and then he does what? He burns half of it in the fire. With his half eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Oh, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes it into a god. He carved, uh, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it. Prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. And here's the coming of Isaiah. They do not know nor understand. See the darkened mind that Paul speaks about? It's also here. For he has shut his eyes so that he cannot see. See his responsibility? (laughs) He cannot see why. Because he shuts his eyes. And their hearts so that they cannot understand. He cannot understand why. Because he shuts his eyes and he shuts his heart. So man is responsible for his condition. No one considers in his heart. And underscore that no one. No one considers in his heart. Nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. 
and he cannot deliver his soul. Nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This is a powerful, let me say, analysis <laughs> of idolatry. It's a powerful analysis of idolatry. And what is what is the whole flow here? What what in what direction is Isaiah going? What is he trying to do mainly? Well we would say we would say he's mainly trying or he's mainly showing uh, the absurdity of idolatry. Well you just cut a tree. Now you use half of it to burn and cook, and then with the other you make a god? Have you lost your mind? That's what he's saying. He's showing the delusive nature, the absurdity, the irrationality of idols. Of idols. Uh, Again, he's speaking to man's reason. And he will speak to man's conscience, the heart. And so my my final thoughts will be basically this, and I think we're going to have to take it up again Sunday to to, to go on. But um, as we said, there are idols at all levels. Um, And as we follow, we need to follow Isaiah's example. Uh, and the main battle that we have that we should uh, uh, engage in is just that we need to be able to be students of men of human idols study their features their contents and to be able to dissect it and show its illusory nature, its irrationality, its mindlessness, um, its deceiving nature. Uh, And that needs to be done, that can be done at all stages, but uh, we we would say that uh, we can think of the, the, the ideologies. Ideologies have been idols during our civilization. My father, I told you, was a communist. He believed in that. And Italy had the strongest co- communist party uh, after the war, you know, in the whole of Western Europe. And now, however, if I <laughs> if I am to point to one book written by some Christian that has tackled communism and has studied it to show its falsity, its deception, its irrationality, its delusiveness, I can't think of one. I don't think there's ever been a book written by an Italian believer that with knowledge of the matter 
has written a has written a book to unmask the idol of communism, and that's a problem. That means that we have failed, because the same thing will be then true with all the other ideologies that have come and gone, but that we as a church have failed to address to help our sinful um, fellow men and women to open their eyes and see. What, was, what is that trying to do? Say, open your eyes. How can you not see? Can you not see? You're worshiping a piece of wood. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. That's what he's doing. But he's, he's making an argument. And that's what we should be doing. Now we know that there is a, a lot of you know, political warfare going on in this nation nowadays. And there is certainly an intellectual battle that must be fought. An ideological battle that must be fought. It will be political ideology against enlightened theology that's the warfare through the means of scripture we need to do battles with with these idols that dominate our culture first of all in an intellectual level because they conquer the consciences they they dominate the mind they brainwash people's thinking and we need we need people that will engage in this intellectual, ideological, or theological battle. Because these idols need to be unmasked. Are we doing this in America? Now, you know, today's Christianity is not known for its depth, sorry to say. There are few writers, it seems, today that are engaged in this intellectual battle. Uh, I think I, I'm a good reader, and I would not know of many that are doing this, even in America, from a Christian, biblical, theological point of view, and yet studying the culture, knowing the culture, the knowledge of men's nature and of men's issues. Uh, in Italy, we have close to zero. And so, and so my last thought, and we'll just then, of course, pick it up next Sunday, Lord willing, is that the church must be supportive also of good intellectual writers and thinkers that will use their gifts uh, to uh, write expose, uh, unmask all of these you know, deceiving idols. Pray for them. I'll always remember 1996 uh, reading uh, David Wells' book, No Place for Truth, The Disappearing of Theology in the Evangelical Church. What caught my attention was not just the good theology of the writer, but he, he, he was what you may call an analyst. He studied culture. And he had a strong theology. And he was able to help others see the, the issues 
that are at the root of a crumbling world. Amen.